0: As I mentioned last Sunday, I want to talk this morning about how to be single and survive. And uh, perhaps you think those two ideas are mutually exclusive, but they uh, they really aren't. Scripture gives us some very practical information on how to live in our society as a single person. I, For myself, I think it's very hard to be single in our society. Uh, it's counterculture. The... Uh, Despite all the alternative lifestyles that are, that are being advocated and lived today, uh, we are still a marriage-oriented culture. And uh, people who are outside of that culture are sometimes looked upon with suspicion. It just doesn't seem right that uh, people would want to live alone when everybody else is uh, living together. And uh, besides, they uh, mess up the seating arrangements at our dinner parties. Uh, how can you alternate men and women around the table when you have an odd number? Which probably perpetuates the impolite myth that uh, singles are an odd number anyway. Uh, we, we tend to have two reactions, I think, toward the single world. Number one, we, we sometimes ignore them. We act as though they're not there. And uh, I think that shows up in, in our conversation more than anything else. You get a, a group of couples together and they tend to talk about couple things and ignore the singles who may be in the room and say and do very insensitive things. The other thing that we do that I think indicates our, our lack of love for those in the single state is that we try to match them up with somebody. We somehow feel that it's our obligation to get them married off. And we play this matchmaker-matchmaker game. Uh, Howard Hendricks used to tell in his classes about a woman in his class, or a woman in one of his congregations, who was obsessed with the idea that her daughter ought to marry uh, Howard. And uh, one day she said to him, I'm convinced that it's God's will that uh, this young lady marry you, and I'm praying that you'll see the light. And... Howie would say with great sincerity, Have you ever thanked God, men, for unanswered prayer? (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of, uh, I think we force them to it, there's a lot of bad humor that prevails among singles about being bachelors to the rapture or uh, celibate to the second coming, depending on what your eschatology is. Uh, Ray Steadman used to tell about a group that were that called themselves Singles Anonymous. It was composed of single uh, people who banded together in order to protect their singleness. Whenever they felt that they might fall off the wagon, so to speak, they would they would call someone else in the group and. Uh, uh, they would send someone to their aid. If it was a man, they'd send a, a woman with, with her hair in curlers and a tacky old bathrobe <laughs> who would nag, nag him all day. If it was a, if it was a young woman, they'd, they'd send a man in a dirty old T-shirt who would sit around and watch TV and just utterly ignore her. Uh, I don't know if that worked or not, but uh, I, I've always felt a lot of that humor is just uh, forced bravado. Uh, sort of whistling in the, in the dark. Um, Paul has some very practical things to say about the issue in 1 Corinthians 7. I'd like to have you turn there with me, if you will. Whenever you announce as a topic that you're going to speak about singles or some uh, group within a congregation like this, the tendency is for everyone else to tune out. When I was a kid growing up, it used to have just the opposite effect on me. When the preacher would say he was going to speak to uh, high school kids, I would just tune off for the rest of the of the service. And I hope you won't do that this morning. And I hope if you're here as a married person that you won't tune out either because there are principles here that obtain whether we're talking about single or married folks. And there are certainly things that we can learn as married people about the single world and how God views that uh, that station in life. Uh, Chapter 7. Let me give you a little bit of cultural background, uh, historical background to this passage so you understand Paul's teaching a little better. Uh, the Corinthians uh, as a church were terribly confused about love, sex, and marriage. We know that from a number of uh, passages in, in, the, in the letter. In part, that was due to Greek thought. The Greeks believed that uh, the body was bad. Ideas were good. Uh, matter didn't matter. And so what, what you did with your body uh, really didn't matter. In some cases, they tended toward a very extreme asceticism and denial of, of bodily uh, functions and passions. On the other hand, most Greeks at that time, had just, they just felt, well, since what you do with the body is immaterial, doesn't matter what you do with the body. So uh, you could you could give vent to all of your passions and drives and desires with uh, propriety, and uh, as you can imagine, the result was that marriage was disparaged. There was uh, disparage. There was a lot of uh, a lot of infidelity. No one took uh, marriage very seriously, and that attitude pervaded the church. In part, the confusion about Sexual matters in, in Corinth was also due to uh, Jewish thinking because the Jews of that era believed that it was virtually sinful to be single because of the uh, mandate in Genesis to uh, fill the earth. They felt that uh, it was God's will for a man to marry and have lots and lots of children or to use the the quaint Old Testament phrase to have your quiver full of them. So um, the question uh was raised in the in the church in Corinth. What is the proper attitude toward marriage? Should we marry and and bear many children, or should we be single and celibate? And it's that issue that Paul is is touching on in this uh, in this chapter, verse seven. Or pardon me, chapter seven, verse one. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Do you hear that? The single state is good. It is a high and holy calling. If you're single, you're not a second-class citizen in God's family. One of our problems is that we don't uh, think of good in absolute terms, but the Bible always does. There was one instance where some men came to Jesus, and they called him good teacher, and he interrupted them and said, "Why, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, he's not disclaiming deity. He's testing their concept of goodness. Because our tendency is to use that term in a relative way. But but in Scripture, if a thing is good, it is absolutely good. There's nothing evil in it. And so when Paul says it is good not to marry, he means it. The single state is good. Don't let anybody ever take that away from you. You're not weird. You're not strange. It's good. Now, if you have a New American Standard uh, translation, you'll notice they translate literally right off the text. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And that uh, is a more precise rendering of, the, uh, of, of Paul's statement. Touch is a euphemism uh, for sexual intercourse. And so the issue here is not simply singleness. It's singleness and celibacy. Uh, The options are not to be either married or uh, single and swinging, but to be married or single and celibate. Now, there there are some uh, conditions under which it is not good to be single, as Paul goes on in verse 2, but since there is so much immorality, Corinth was such a sex-saturated culture, each man should have his own wife. And each woman her own husband. Now, I'm not going to go on and elaborate on this, on this paragraph, because Brian did that three weeks ago. But I want you to, uh, to uh, move down to verse 7. Paul says, I wish that all men were as I am. Paul was single. And he wishes that everyone were as he. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. In other words, if you're married, that's God's gift to you. If you are single, that's his gift. Jesus had already said in Matthew 19, in his discussion on divorce and uh, remarriage, when he made things so difficult, the disciples said, it's better not to marry. Jesus said, that's not everyone's gift. If you have the gift, then it's good. If you don't have the gift, then you should marry. So you need to understand, that's a gracious provision for God. If you are single, you are gifted. Now the question is, how do you know if you have the gift of uh, being single? You know, is it some sort of physical predisposition against, uh, uh, against sexual things? Can you just do without love, sex, and marriage? No. Does it mean that you're a loner who has no urge to merge? You, just, you never get lonely? No. Does it mean that you hate women in in general and children in particular? No. No. Or hate men, whichever. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It may mean you're very lonely. It may mean that you have very strong sexual drives. But if you are now single, that is God's gift. That's the whole point. Now, don't give way to the fear of finality, as someone put it. This may not be the, the only call that God extends to you. He may change your state if you're single. It may be God's will for you to, to be married at some point in your life. But if you are now single, that is God's call. And there is sufficient grace. So don't look down on yourself. Don't disparage your, your state. It's good. It's absolutely good. I mentioned some months ago a a man whom I have only met once, but who is my hero, who is single. He's been single all of his life. He's in his 60s now. And uh, a a friend that I made just this last fall who was his close associate for years, asked him the question I've always wanted to ask, "Do, do you feel that you have the gift of celibacy? He said, well, I don't know. He said, I've always wanted to marry. He said, I've had several opportunities, but things just didn't work out right. He said, I'm very lonely. Uh, I don't uh, advocate being single, but it is obviously God's will for me, and I'm satisfied. Now, that's the gift of celibacy. If you are now single, that's God's gift, and he will supply adequate grace. He will be your partner in life. He will meet all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's either true or it's a lie. And if it's a lie, we might as well forget the whole thing. He's the God who cannot lie. He'll be your partner in life. He'll satisfy every need that you have. Now, what follows in verses uh, 8 and on are a series of, uh, of conditions. Uh which would prevail in any congregation Paul says in verse 8 now to the unmarried that is the divorced and the widows i say it's good for them to stay unmarried in other words you're not under any compulsion to get married again again if you're single now for either of these two reasons either your husband has left you or you've been widowed you're not compelled to marry that you're not out of order You don't have to look for a mate, necessarily. But, he says, if you cannot control yourself, you should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And then to the married, in verse 10, he says, I give this commandment, not I but the Lord. In other words, uh, the Lord has already instructed the church in this matter. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Maintain the status quo. If you're single, don't seek to be married. If you're married, don't seek to be unmarried. That was the Lord's uh, command with reference to the married. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. In other words, the Lord made no authoritative statement on this issue. Uh, uh, If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. So he takes the principle on to apply to marriage, whether it's marriage between two Christians or one Christian and a non-Christian. And then in verses 17 and following, he supplies the principle which underlies all of his teaching. And essentially the principle is this, maintain the status quo. You don't have to make any changes to make things better. The principle is bracketed by verses 17 and 24. He actually says the same thing twice and fills in the details in between. Verse 17, nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him. If you're married, that's the Lord's assignment for you. Are you single? That's his assignment. And that to which God has called him, that's a vocation. And then in verse 23, you were bought with uh, pardon me, verse 24 brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God has called him to. You see what he's saying? Don't make any changes. Maintain the status quo. Our tendency is to think that if we can just change our circumstances, then our character will change. We'll be better. We'll do better if we're in better circumstances. But that's a myth. Those that are married want out. Those that are unmarried want in. And there's, as someone has said, they're like flies uh, at, at a window. Those that are inside want to get out, and those that are outside want to get in. I was teaching at Clydehurst Guest Ranch over near uh, Yellowstone National Park. Last September. It was one of those unseasonable uh, days over there when it snowed. There was about four inches of snow on the ground in late September, and it was really cold. They had me in a little log cabin with a fireplace, and I was warm and, and cozy. But in the middle of the night, I heard this cat yowling outside the door. And I opened the door, and here was this pitiful creature with snow all over its head, shivering. And, and so I said, Oh, all right, come on in. So the cat came in and laid down in front of the fire, and, and, and lasted about five minutes, and the cat got very restless. It was obvious the cat didn't like to be in the same room with me. The cat wanted me to leave, and so he could (laughs) stay. And I wasn't just about to leave, so I I, uh, shut the door, and the the cat began to scratch on the door, and he jumped on the window, and just absolutely went crazy. He wanted out. So I let the cat out. Five minutes later, he was yowling at the door. He wanted in. This went on about two or three times until I finally pitched him out the back door and let him fend for himself. But... But the cat reminded me of so many people who can't decide whether they want in or out. They just think that the circumstances will be so much better. I mean, our character will be so much better. Things would be so much better if our circumstances change. But that's the big lie. It's not so. It's God who changes us, not our circumstances. As Paul puts it in Philippians 4. He says, I have learned in any and all circumstances to be content. That comes hard. He didn't pick that up immediately. That I've learned it. I've learned to be abased. I've learned how to abound. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret of living in any and all circumstances, is to let Christ be your strength. Let him be your partner. Let him be your life. Let him be everything you need. Let him satisfy your needs according to his riches in, 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 in glory. That's, that's the key to Satisfaction. Now, Paul then applies that general principle in its particulars, beginning with verse 25, now about virgins, he says. Virgin, of course, is an unmarried uh, woman. And I suppose we would say today in our, uh, in our idiom, women friends or girlfriends, he's speaking to men, who had written to ask whether they should, whether they should marry or not. We have we have friends, women, that we're very close to. We're very fond of. Should we marry them? Paul says, I have no command from the Lord. The Lord didn't leave any instructions on this matter. But I give an opinion. He's very careful in his choice of words. This is not an authoritative statement. It's not a command from an inspired apostle. It's an opinion, a judgment. He says, I, I, I have an opinion as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. It may be one of the greatest masterpieces of understatement. He says, I think you can trust me in in what I'm saying. This is my opinion. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Um, we don't know what the present crisis was that he refers to here. Some have thought it was the second coming. Paul's belief in the imminency of Christ's return possible, although that's not the terminology that Paul uses when he refers to the Second Coming. For myself, I think he's talking about the imminency of of persecution. Uh, Nero came to the throne just shortly before Paul wrote this letter, a year or two, and Paul could see the handwriting on the wall. He knew this infamous tyrant for what he was. It was about eight years later that that Nero burned the city of Rome and blamed the Christians for it, and a wave of persecution swept across the Roman Empire that almost swamped the church. And Paul is saying, in view of the imminency of this crisis, exigencies of, of, of this day, the tough times that are coming, he says, "I think it's it's better to keep things as they are." Uh, are you married? He says, "Don't seek a divorce." That, of course, is not just counsel that. Comes from the Lord's uh, lips and his authority as well. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, he says, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who, who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you. Comes out of a heart of concern. He's not trying to make things more difficult says later, this is not to hinder you. It's not to frustrate you. I just want to spare you. I think you're better off as you are. When high seas are running, you don't change ships. Maintain the status quo. Stay with the present set of circumstances. Stop kidding yourself that changing circumstances is going to change your character. And don't fool yourself that that, that changing circumstances is somehow going to make life better for you. And particularly in view of the coming crisis, he says, I I think it's better for you to stay single because married people have a lot of trouble. In other words, marriage is not what it's cracked up to be. It's not an answer to all of your problems. You just exchange one set of problems for another. There's a hassle of housekeeping and maintaining the home and maintaining your vehicles and repairing appliances and and disciplining children and, and getting children off to school and schooling them and buying clothes for them and, and buying groceries for them and cooking for them and repairing their bikes and mowing the lawn and and all of the, the things that we have to do. And then there are the stresses and strains of just learning to get along with each other and get used to the flimsy things that hang in the bathroom and all that stuff. And <laughs> it's just... a uh, just a part of living together, and it's not easy. It's a lot of trouble, and Paul says, I just want to spare you. In the best of times, it's, it's tough to be married, and in the worst of times, it is awful. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Jesus said that uh, when, when Jerusalem was, was overrun, that the most woe-begone of all people would be women with children, and pregnant women. That's what he has in mind. There are times when it's just better to remain single. Now, uh, uh, Paul elaborates in verses 29 and following. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. I think that phrase is explained by uh, verse, uh, what is it, 31. For in this for in this for this world in its present form is passing away. Um, we're not long for this world, I hope you know that. And this world is not going to last very long either. And most of these of the things that we devote our lives to as married people will burn up someday. Uh, they're not eternal things. The lawn that you devote so much time to is not going to endure. Your vehicles. Being married carries with it certain obligations, and those obligations have to be fulfilled. And unfortunately, most of our obligations tie us down to things that aren't going to last very long. And Paul is saying in view of the shortness of, of our lifespan and the brief period of time that we have to extend the kingdom of God... And to devote ourselves to things that are going to last, Paul says, it's, it's better to be single. Now let, let Paul explain. Paul says in 29, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. For now on, those who have wives should live as, as if they have none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as, as if it were not theirs. In other words, you may hold many things in your hand, but don't. Don't cling to it. Don't hold it too tightly, he says. And those who use the things of the world as not engrossed in them, it's all right to use them. But don't devote your life to them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Paul says, I'd I'd like for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. He's distracted. An unmarried woman or or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, that is, she can give herself fully to service. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. Now, he's not saying that being single is a higher moral state and that somehow you're more devoted to Christ if you're single. That was a, an error that developed in the church in the second and third centuries and found its way into the medieval period and the idea that celibacy somehow was a higher moral state. There's more grace given to a single person. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not talking about greater pieties. And he's talking about greater devotion. He's talking about service. The issue is not piety. It's practicality. What Paul is saying is that if you're married, you have to devote a great deal of your time to the upkeep of your home and serving your wife and your family. And of necessity, that takes away from the time that could be devoted to the extension of the kingdom of God. And do you understand what he's saying? He's not downgrading the married state. He's not downgrading the obligations that we have. Those are things that we must do. As a matter of fact... Uh, our service to our family is, is worship, as Brother Lawrence put it. You can peel potatoes and worship God if you're practicing the, the presence of Christ. It's just a, it's a, it's a practical matter. If you are single, you have more time to devote yourself to leading people to Christ, discipling them, and extending the kingdom of God and serving the, the body of Christ in various ways. That's all he's trying to say. It's a practical matter. The Apostle Paul, looking back on his life, could say that uh, it was a good thing for him to forego the obligations of, of married life because he could not have done the things that he did if he were married. As a single man, he could travel extensively, he had no responsibilities back home, he could plant churches, he could fling his life away with, with abandon. It didn't matter. Paul says, just as a a practical matter in view of the brevity of our lifespan, it's a good thing to be single because you have more time to serve. Now, he balances that out in verse 36. Oh, let, let me read verse 35 first, because this is his summation. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, not to inhibit you, not to frustrate you, but that you may live in an appropriate way in undivided Undistracted devotion, undistracted service. Now, to balance society says if anyone thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, the the, uh, the NIV translators have have interpreted the phrase in that way. It's the, the word is simply his virgin. If anyone thinks he is acting uh, improperly toward his virgin. And if she is getting along in years, that is, she has passed her her prime, which in the Roman world was mid-twenties, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries his virgin does right, and he who does not marry her does even better. And this is in view of the present crisis. You see? Now, this is a difficult paragraph, and it's been interpreted numerous ways. Uh, Some see here the practice of of what was called spiritual marriage during the second and third uh, centuries after the New Testament was written. There, because of certain misconceptions, Greek thought basically that encroached in, into uh, Christian thinking, uh, that made sex something evil, there was a, the practice of marrying but remaining celibate. And some have interpreted the passage this way. You are engaged or married to this uh, young woman, but uh, you, you're continent. That seems to me to be a violation of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 2 through 5, where he says not to do that sort of thing. So... For myself, I can't see that practice here. Certainly, is not anything taught in Scripture. Uh, others have seen this as a practice of arranged marriages, and the reference is to a father and his daughter. And I think the NASB uh, translates it that way. If a man uh, does not want to give his daughter in marriage, then he's under no obligation to do so. Uh, marriages were arranged in those days, and Paul is saying that's, that's it's all right. You don't have to feel pressured by your culture to arrange a marriage for your daughter. But if she, uh, if she wants to marry, that that's all right. she hasn't sinned, go ahead and, and arrange that marriage. For myself, I, I see it, as the NIV takes it, that uh, these are words addressed to a young man who has a young woman that he's very fond of. And Paul is saying, in view of the pressures of this time, it's better to not marry. But if you marry, it's all right. You haven't done anything sinful. Uh, that's, it's perfectly okay to marry. This is Paul's summation in verse thirty. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. Because he's talking not about devotion to Christ, but service to him. Now, let me make what I hope are some practical uh, suggestions. The point of all of this, the, the thing that Paul wants to underscore in our thinking, is that the single state is good. It's not a secondary calling. It's a high and holy calling with privileges that those of us who are married do not have. It's, it's a fact that single people in general have more discretionary time and money than any of us who are married. That's not always true, and particularly for those of you who are single parents, you probably have a great deal of your time taken taking up just maintaining the home. But in general, single people, particularly unmarried, those who have never been married and who have no children, have far more time to themselves and for themselves, more free time. And more free money, more discretionary money than, than anyone else. The temptation on the part of single people is to use that freedom to indulge themselves, to buy uh, bigger and better stereos with higher phi to uh, buy the quickest uh, Porsche that's uh, coming off the assembly line, uh, or to buy sailboats or hang gliders or the best and the newest ski equipment, everything that's uh, available, and to spend a great deal of time in self-indulgence. Those are just the facts. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 5, that we should not use our freedom to indulge ourselves, whatever that freedom is. But Paul says, use your freedom to serve one another in love. The freedom, the gift that God has given to you in your, in your single state is a gift to be used in service for him. You're no better off spiritually than a married person. God doesn't look at you any, any differently than a married person. It's simply that you have more time to serve, more time to disciple people, more time to spend in Bible study and prayer and worship, more time to devote to the cause of Christ and to extend His kingdom. And my suggestion would be to you that you redeem the time, that you use it wisely. John Stott, who most of you know, is an Anglican minister, was for a time the chaplain to the Queen of England, rector of All Souls Church in, in London, it's had an enormous impact upon his world understand that he spends uh, some four to six hours a day in bible study and and in prayer and in worship and out of that has come these these deep uh provocative helpful writings that we're all familiar with and his teaching he used his time wisely he didn't dissipate it he used it for the sake of of the kingdom of god he takes a month off Uh, Every year, just to read and to pray. And and none of us who are married have that kind of time. It's impossible. He now has been appointed the uh, catechist to the new prince of England. And who knows what impact that man could have upon the the subsequent history of England as a result of his having wisely used his time. Use your spare time to get to know God, to deepen your life and your relationship with to him. Get into a Discovery Center class or some other place where you can can learn and, and grow and begin to use that, that information and that knowledge and that wisdom to help others to grow. And secondly, serve. Don't, don't sit around and feel sorry for yourself. For goodness sake, you, you've got a high and holy calling. Serve God with all of your heart. Those of you that are would-be mothers who would love to have some child to mother, start teaching a Sunday school class or a Bible study of of young children and start spiritually mothering those children, investing your time and your your energies in them, doing things with them, not merely teaching them, but but investing in in their lives. Henrietta Mears uh, was, was single all of, of her life. A single woman who first was a missionary in China and then came back to Southern California and was for years the teacher of the college class in Hollywood Presbyterian Church. When I was stationed in the service at Barstow, I used to drive over on weekends to sit in on her college class, and she had an enormous influence on me. Um, Richard Halverson, who now is the chaplain of the United States uh, Senate, is, is one of her products. Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, came out of of her ministry. She didn't sit around and feel sorry for herself. She got busy, and she started serving. Uh, Wetherill Johnson is another who comes to mind, who has begotten hundreds, thousands, perhaps, of men and women through uh, through Bible study fellowship. Many of you here are her spiritual children in that sense. And I've already mentioned John Stott. And C.S. Lewis, who didn't marry until he was 60, who was the premier uh, apologist for the Christian faith for decades, uh, he used his time wisely. So my my counsel, and more importantly, Paul's counsel to you, is don't feel sorry for yourself. Uh, Don't try to find yourself by finding yourself. Jesus said the best way to lose yourself is to try to find yourself, to indulge yourself and look for people to be your friends and to help you and minister to you and and serve you and take away your loneliness. You have sufficient grace to to turn away from that temptation and to begin to serve. You will find yourself, Jesus said, by losing yourself in service to others. That's what I think it means to be single-minded. It's a high and holy vo- a vocation to which God has uniquely called you. Use your time while you're single as a, as an investment in eternity. Let's pray. And Father, teach all of us to be sensitive to the uh, the unmarried among us, to be aware of their needs and to seek to meet those needs in practical ways. Help us to fold them in love and include them into our families and to honor them as you do and help all of us Lord to turn away from our tendency to think of ourselves and to pander to the flesh and indulge ourselves and help us to, to act in in, loving, in, in ways uh, in loving service toward others and in ways that that further your kingdom. Thank you that you're the one who makes it possible that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.